If you turn, please, in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, and I want to begin reading with verse 16. And as you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, I just want to say that it has been a privilege to be by you guys this day. We continue to pray for you as a church, as well as a family, and we rejoice in God's many kindnesses towards you. Ecclesiastes 10, beginning with verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays, And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Our Father, as we come again to this, your word... We ask that you would give us eyes to see it, hearts to believe it, hands and feet to live in light of it. For Jesus' sake, amen. I think I'm right to suggest that next to the book of the Song of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most neglected books in the Old Testament. And I want to briefly suggest a few reasons One, admittedly, it's difficult. It's a poetic book that admittedly has several difficult passages in it. At times, the Hebrew is almost impossible to translate, and the meaning of several passages remains uncertain. But secondly, and I think probably more so, it's not only difficult, but it's misunderstood. By this, I mean most of the modern commentators, not all of them. I'm going to quote from a couple happy... um, Uh, differences or exceptions, but nevertheless, the majority of modern commentators interpret the book very negatively. But the book isn't pessimistic as much as realistic. It teaches us how to live righteously, modestly, and joyfully under the sun. Thus, the primary theme of the book is life under the sun. That is, life in a world that's fleeting and oftentimes perplexing. This is the primary meaning of the phrase, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Vanity doesn't here mean meaningless so much as fleeting, that is temporal, and perplexing. In fact, Solomon uses the term most often in that latter sense to mean that life is beyond our ability to comprehend. And thus, a dominant theme through the book is Solomon's wrestling with the work of God's sovereign and oftentimes mysterious providence. In fact, we could even perhaps describe the book as such. It describes life under the sun, that is, life in a world that oftentimes is hard to make sense of. And so what I want to do is to spend just a little bit tonight and consider this passage that I've read, Ecclesiastes 10, verses 16 to 20, under these two simple headings. First of all, I want to explain it, 
And there we want to move through the passage rather quickly. And then I want to come secondly back up to apply it. And I want to suggest three broad applications from it. All right, so notice first of all the passage explained. Verses 16 to 20 form a distinct unit in themselves with the reoccurring theme of kings, the theme of unjust rulers being a consistent theme throughout the book. And I want to expound the passage under these two headings. We'll see in verses 16 to 19 the relationship of rulers to their people, and then in verse 20 the relationship of people to their rulers. Notice first the relationship of rulers to the people. We find that bad rulers bring woe, verse 16, and good rulers bring blessing, verses 17 to 19. Notice verse 16, bad rulers bring woe. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince, princes feast in the morning. Now to have a child as a ruler means that the ruler or the king is incompetent, which in turn leaves the kingdom vulnerable. Thus, it's not so much an age issue as a competency, a competency issue, a child being, of course, unable to rule a land with prudence. Listen to a couple commentators, both of them a little older, John Gill and then Edward Reynolds. Mr. Gale said, not so much in age, though it is sometimes an unhappiness to a nation to be governed by a minor, especially if the young king hasn't good tutors, guardians, ministers, and counselors about him. But if otherwise, a nation may be very happy under a minority or the government of a young prince. Such were Solomon, Joash, Uzziah, Josiah, and our Edward VI. But it rather respects one that is a child in understanding and judgment, in manners and conduct, that minds his pleasures as children their play, is fickle and changeable, passionate and self-willed, unskillful in government, and yet will not be advised. So Gill is suggesting, I think rightly, that here, child isn't so much an age as an attitude. Again, this is the testimony of Mr. Reynolds. He means not so much in age, but in understanding, in experience, in manners. When a man childishly allows the affairs of a kingdom to be turned upside down, to be broken by pieces because of him, carelessness, and a thorough lack of prudence and skill to discern between what is right and what is wrong. So woe be to the land that's ruled by a foolish king or ruler, one that's like a child, not so much in age as in character and ability. Now by princes, I think is meant rulers, those who rule alongside the king and give him counsel and or assistance. The feast in the morning indicates excessive behavior, which again would leave the land unprotected. As we see in verse 17, there are proper times for feasting, but this obviously wouldn't be in the morning. The point being an incompetent and or foolish king will likely surround himself with incompetent and or foolish princes. 
Mr. Bridges says, the character and habits of the princess were generally after the example of a sovereign. A corrupt king brings up a corrupt court. Now, I want you to make application of some of these to our present day because I hope to do that here in the applications. Again, Mr. Reynolds. Though the king be a child, yet if he have prudent and vigilant counselors, their care may recompense and supply his defects. But where they likewise be as bad as he, where all the ministers of state follow only their private gain and pleasures without any regards unto public welfare, no wonder if such a nation have a woe to hang above it. And so Solomon tells us, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child that is incompetent, acts like a child, is foolish like a child, and your princes feast in the morning, that is, they look out for themselves and their own pleasures. And then notice verses 17 to 19, good rulers bring blessing. Verse 17, blessed are you, O land, when your king is the sons of nobles, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. To be a son of nobles means you've received proper education and have the necessary skills to govern a country. Thus, it's not simple nobility that's in view, but competency and honesty. Such people are righteous rulers. This is, of course, in contrast to the child. Such a king will have princes who feast at the proper time as opposed to the morning, and for proper reasons, Solomon says, for strength and not for drunkenness. This means they eat and drink in moderation, not as a glutton or drunk, but to nourish and strengthen the body. It means that they're not living to feast, but they feast in order to live and to govern alongside the righteous ruler. They are wise and self-controlled. They know how to eat and drink in ways that bring glory to God. Verse 18, because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. I think this verse does provide a, a basic principle, and yet I think in the context, it refers specifically to lazy and drunken rulers. Mr. Gale concurs, he said, families, churches, and kingdoms come to nothing, through the sluggishness of masters of families, ministers of the word, and civil magistrates. You can see how he applies it to those three realms, and I think you can. He applies it to families, a family governed by a child, a fool, someone who feasts in the morning is going to suffer harm, a church likewise, if ruled by foolish men who feast in the morning, they too will suffer harm, and also families. So I do think it has application to all three, but then he goes on to say, to the latter, that is civil magistrates, of which more especially this is to be applied, who give up themselves to luxury and sloth. In other words, Solomon is describing the sad effects of being ruled by lazy and or incompetent rulers. I think verse 18 speaks of the sad consequences 
of being ruled over by a child and or princes who feast in the morning. Buildings would decay and houses leak. The overall health and prosperity of the nation will suffer at their incompetent hands. Verse 19, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. I take this verse in the first place to be positive. Just as feasts result in laughter and wine makes merry, so money is able to answer many needs in the nation. In other words, as feasting answers one necessity, as wine answers another necessity, obviously, again, in moderation, so money, when properly used as feasting and wine, answers many needs. A feast provides laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything or all things. A proper use of feasting meets the need for laughter. A proper use of wine meets the need for merriment. And money, when properly applied or used, can meet the needs of many things. I think this is what Solomon is saying. Keep in mind also, brethren, that verse 19 is in contrast to verse 18. Verse 18 is the sad consequence of being ruled by foolish leaders, verse 16, whereas verse 19 is the happy consequence of being ruled by wise leaders, verse 17. Now, I mentioned that the bulk, not all, but the bulk of modern commentators are rather unhelpful as a whole on the book of Ecclesiastes, but there are some wonderful exceptions, and I want to quote from one of them and that is Philip Ryken. Philip Ryken said, verse 19 shows the wisdom of hard work as compared with the folly of lazy ease. In contrast to the lazy fool, a hardworking individual has everything that he or she needs. You can see how he's applying verses in 18 and 19 more directly to individuals, and that's how most people take them, and you can apply them to individuals, as I've said, you can apply them to homes, you can apply them to churches, but in the context, they're to be applied for mostly to nations. Woe to the land that's ruled by children. Foolish, incompetent, wicked, hedonistic rulers. Because, verse 18, the land will suffer. In contrast, Blessed is that land ruled by competent, godly rulers. Because verse 19, that land will prosper. Now, Mr. Riken goes on to say, Money does have its limitations, of course, which is why the Bible often warns us not to trust in it or worship it. But from the practical standpoint, what the preacher says remains true. If we have enough money... We can buy anything else we need. Bread is a daily necessity. Fine wine, a delicious pleasure. But if we have the money, we can buy both bread and wine, plus anything else that we need or want. 
There is something else that money can do, which is to advance the kingdom of God by supporting the ministry of a local church and its missionary work around the world. A wise person works hard to get enough money, not only to pay for daily necessities, but also to honor God by celebrating the good things of the world, and more importantly, by making a major investment in the work of God's kingdom. Thus, within verses 18 and 19, we have a contrast between the lazy, verse 18, and diligent, verse 19. The one has nothing, building decays, house, and roof leaks, whereas the other has all that they need. Again, it ought to be applied to individuals, to homes, to churches, but foremostly in the context, to nations. Now, you know that Solomon also wrote the bulk, if not all of, the book of Proverbs. Let me just quote a couple of them that I think are saying basically the same thing as this text, but more in a concise way. Proverbs 10.4, he who has a slack hand becomes poor. His house will decay and roof leak, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, i.e. his house decays and roof leaks, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Proverbs 14 and 23. In all labor there's profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Again, this principle, brethren, is true on every level. Individually, domestically, ecclesiastically, and nationally. In all labor there's profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. Now, that brings me then, secondly, to verse 20 in the relationship of people to the rulers. Having seen the relation of rulers to the people, now we want to see the opposite. Verse 20, do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For the bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Here Solomon returns, I think again, to foolish rulers. Thus by the rich are met princes, think back to verse 16, those affiliated with the king, his counselors, or his court. These are incompetent and hedonistic rulers who line their pockets with riches while the people suffer. To curse them is to wish destruction upon them. To curse them is to wish destruction upon them. Exodus twenty two twenty eight. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Notice here how to curse a ruler is to revile God, as earthly rulers are ordained of God and serve by his authority. The New Testament exhorts us to pray for them, 1 Timothy 2, submit to them, Romans 13, and honor them, 1 Peter 2. The reason being, Solomon says, for a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. That is, news of your rebellion, news of your cursing, news of your sin, may get back to the rulers, which may result in further hardship for you. 
Furthermore, even if the king or prince never hears of it, God who sees and knows all things is aware of it, and thus he says, not even to curse them in your thought or in secret. And again, I think the reason being, as we're going to see here in a minute when we come to our applications, all rulers, even wicked ones, to use the language of verse 16, even those who are children, literally, and I think more so morally, and with regards to competency, even those princes who feast in the morning, wicked and evil, godless, incompetent rulers, as well as good rulers, verse 17, they're all ordained of God and are his servants. And thus Solomon exhorts us, he warns us, not to curse them either in our thoughts or in secret. Thus we're to pray for, submit to, and honor all earthly rulers, regardless if they're foolish and or incompetent. Verse 20 again, do not curse the king, even in your thought. Brethren, who who else knows our thoughts but God? The inference being is that all rulers, good and bad, are ultimately ordained of God. Do not curse the rich. By riches meant the princes. That is those in charge of you. I think here it's possible that he's referring to those who wickedly become rich off the people. For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight might tell the matter. Be sure your sin will find you out. I think this is what Solomon is saying. Now, we're going to come back to this again, and I'm going to hope to clarify it, but brethren, just let us start with the obvious. It's sin to curse a ruler. Now, I want to qualify that, but nevertheless, this is what the text does say. Do not curse the king, even in your thoughts, let alone in secret in your bedchambers. Even if the king never hears of it, God will. And because kings are his servants, he will hold you accountable. Thus, do not curse them in your thoughts or in private. All right, now that brings us to some applications. And here I want to suggest three broad lessons for us today. As one man has once said, having shown you the what of the passage, I want to spend the remainder of our time showing you the so what of the passage. Now, let me simply say, as I've said, while the passage possesses applications for homes and churches, I want to limit it to nations. And that's, I think, the foremost point that Solomon is here making. Again, a home or church ruled by foolish leaders will inevitably suffer for it. The building will decay and the roof will leak. But I think this text speaks specifically to the plight of nations. And brother, let me just say this also on the front end of our second head. I hope as I've worked through the passage, the applications, the relevancy of this passage to our present context, I hope became rather evident. If this country has ever been ruled by a child, it's today. If this country has ever been ruled by princes who feast in the morning, It's today. And tragically, because of laziness, the building decays and the house leaks. 
All right, three lessons. Number one, the overall health of a nation will be closely aligned with its ruler. Woe and blessing will fall upon nations in relation to their rulers. Woe to you, O land, verse 16. Blessed are you, O land, verse 17. Proverbs 29, 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. When a wicked man rules, the people groan under his oppressive, foolish, selfish, and incompetent policies. Furthermore, because of his foolishness, he likely will surround himself with princes who feast in the morning. And what will be the sad consequence of this? Verse 18, because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. The land suffers. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Such foolish leaders will often punish honest and diligent citizens and, conversely, reward dishonest and lazy citizens. For example, in our country, misspending, laziness, and feasting in the morning are oftentimes rewarded with handouts. Our foolish rulers give out millions of dollars every month to lazy and dishonest people who feast in the morning. Now, obviously, brethren, this doesn't mean that every person who receives welfare in this country is lazy and or dishonest. My own parents received welfare on and off throughout my whole childhood. But my daddy hated it. And in fact, he hated it so much that he joined the military when he was 29 and had three children and a wife just to get off welfare. Thus, if a person needs a hand up, that's one thing. But to live for handouts, that's another thing. Brother, when a nation continually for decades rewards lazy people who feast in the morning with millions and millions of dollars, it's only time when the houses begin to decay and the roofs leak. In contrast, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice as the country is safe and prospers. Verse 19, a feast is made for laughter, wine makes merry, but money answers everything. In other other words, ordinarily, when wicked people rule, the people suffer. Verse 18, when the righteous rule, generally speaking, the people prosper. Verse 19, I think that's the basic meaning of the text. This means that the king and princess are to create incentives for people to live honest and hardworking lives. They are to punish lazy people, people who feast in the morning, and they're to reward those who feast at proper times and in proper ways. Peter put it like this, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. 
Brethren, surely we understand that this is fundamental to the purpose of the magistrate. To punish evildoers and reward those who do good. Or, in the language of our text, to punish those who feast in the morning and to reward those who feast at the proper time. It's the responsibility of magistrates to punish evildoers and to praise, that is, to reward those who do good. But alas, whenever a land is ruled by a child and their princes feast in the morning, they reward evildoers and oftentimes punish those who do good. Brethren, again, think about it. Our present president, our present king and princes, they often do because of their policies. Reward the evildoer and punish those who do good. Let me give a few uh, examples. Let's say, for example, somebody robs and murders one of our family members. In a land that's ruled by a son of nobles, governed by princes who feast at the proper time, such a person as that would be tried, found guilty, and killed, perhaps a few weeks or months later, preferably public. But in a land governed by a king who is a child, whose princes feast in the morning, such a villain is what? Is tried, found guilty, and given a life sentence. And then such a person lives for what? 30, 40, 50 years on whose dime? Ours. Brethren, you do understand that it takes $120,000 a year to house one inmate. $120,000 a year. Who pays for that? If you th if think about a city like Chicago, for example, what if the wicked, wretched mayor of Chicago did his or her job and executed murderers, tried them, found them guilty, and then executed them again, preferably public? Could you imagine the crime rate would go down so drastically? Likely, in weeks, it would go down probably by 50%. But instead, murderers are let off and even rewarded in the sense that they live for another 30 to 50 years on the dime of taxpayers. Or else, let me give you another example. Think of a couple of teenagers who are in a department store, and they're brawling and they're fighting. And because of their disorderly conduct, they end up destroying the store and cause tens of thousands of dollars in damage. In a land ruled by the sons of nobles where princes feast at the proper time, such would be tried and forced to pay retribution in the form of free labor. They'd have to pay back the poor owner of the shop. That, that's what would happen in a land ruled by the sons of nobles whose princes feast at the proper time. 
But what would happen in a land where the king is a child and its princes feast in the morning? Well, in the worst scenario, such people would be let off scot-free. Or else they would be tried and they would serve six months, maybe eight months in the county jail. Again, at whose dime? All the while, the shop owner is the one that suffers. Brother, again, think of how relevant the passage is. Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. That's our nation. And it's because it's, it's, it's directly related to the fact that our country at present is ruled by a child. who's gathered around himself princes who feast in the morning. Secondly, all earthly rulers are servants of God and will give an account to God. And I take this largely from verse 20. And thus we're told not to curse the king even in our thoughts and or in secret. Now, in telling us not to curse the servants of God, I suggest to you that that implies at least three things. One, we must speak respectfully, we must speak respectfully, but honestly of them. In telling us not to curse them, I don't believe Solomon means that we're never to criticize them. And the reason why I say that is because he's criticizing them here in the text. He says they're children who gather around themselves hedonistic princes, that is, princes who feast in the morning. Yes, we have to speak of them in an honorable way, even if they're but children who feast in the morning. Charles Bridges says, If it be our duty to protest, we must not forget the respect due to their office, apart from their personal character. But brethren, the scriptures wouldn't have us to put our head in the sand and act as if everything is going well. Solomon, again, within this very passage, speaks of kings as children and princes who feast in the morning. This is to say they're incompetent, foolish, selfish rulers who, because of their policies, destroy nations. And thus, if Solomon says that of Wicked rulers, then it's not evil, wrong, or sinful for us to speak similarly of ours when our rulers are children who feast in the morning. Now, there was an old Puritan, American Puritan, by the name of John, uh, John Cotton. And he wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and listen to what he said on this point. A private subject may... So at this point, he's going to give us context for how and why we can criticize our rulers. He says, a private subject may first conceive of a king as he sees him plainly to be, and so of other statesmen. And accordingly, as this calling requires it, he may reprove them all to their faces. This is not to vilify or curse him, but to restore and heal them, or at least to leave them without excuse. In other words, it's proper for a subject to speak of a king rightly, honestly, though with respect and with honor. 
Second, he may complain of their wickedness to God and confess it. Brethren, surely we do this. We confess to God that we're ruled by a child and we're governed by princes who feast in the morning. Thirdly, he may speak of it to subjects so far as to prevent the corrupting of them by the authority or example of their governors. That is, it's not wrong for a husband to speak to his wife and to his children, a pastor to speak to his people straightforwardly and matter-of-factly concerning the wretchedness and the wickedness of their rulers. Yeah, we're not to exaggerate it. We're not to speak in ways that are borderline um, exaggerating or overstating the facts. But nevertheless, brethren, the scripture wouldn't have us to put our heads in the sand and act as if everything's fine when it's not. Where in the world do script, does the scriptures encourage us to live in another realm that, other than reality? Brethren, to put it as straightforwardly as I can, we live presently in a land ruled by a child. An 80-year-old something child who's gathered around him princes who feast in the morning. Secondly, we must pray that God would convert them. We must speak about, of them honestly, honorably, but secondly, we have to pray that God would convert them. Remember, brethren, our success is, ne is necessarily connected with theirs. And so I do pray every day for our leaders. I pray for our king and princes. I pray almost every Sunday in our congregational prayer for our king, who's a child, and our princes who feast in the morning. You know Paul tells us that, doesn't he? Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, yes, even children, even childlike kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You can see here, brethren, again, how our success is necessarily tied with theirs. I usually almost always pray, one, Lord, save them. Do to them what you've done to me. Secondly, I pray that you would at least restrain them, that they wouldn't be as childish and as hedonistic as they otherwise would be. And quite frankly, I, play, I pray that God would replace them, that he'd take them away in any and all ways that he sees fit, and that he would give us rulers that are sons of nobles and princes who feast at the proper time. You know, this is actually implied in the prayer. Paul tells us to pray for everybody in authority that we would live peaceable and God-honoring lives, that we would have a context to serve God in a way that would honor him, that we wouldn't be in verse 18, but verse 19, that the nation as a whole would know prosperity. 
And so if Paul tells us to pray that our country would prosper, then that necessarily implies that we're to also work to bring to pass those very petitions. You know the basic premise or principle of prayer. You pray for it, and then you have to do that which you can to bring about the answering of the prayer. For example, if I pray to God that I would lose weight, but I don't alter my diet or exercise, that would be a temptation of God. I would be tempting him. Yes, I pray, oh God, help me. Help me be disciplined in my diet. Help me to be disciplined in my exercise. Lord, help me to lose weight, to honor you. But then I get up in the morning and I exercise and I, and I, and I exercise self-control with respect to my meals. And so we're to pray, oh God, have mercy upon our foolish king and these wicked princes. And then we do that which we can, i.e. we vote and do other things that might bring to pass, that might bring to fruition those very petitions. Brother, I've never understood Christians who think it's ultra-spiritual to be apolitical. we all understand that our success as a nation is directly connected to our kings and princes. It's true, ultimately, our citizenship is in heaven. And I'm going to come back to that in closing. But we also understand that we are citizens by God's providence of this nation. And brother, and I love our nation. And it makes me angry, and I hope righteously so, that we're at present governed by a child and princess who feasts in the morning, and because of it, our country suffers. Our building decays and our roof leaks. And sometimes I can even be sinfully, I'm sure carnally, angry and or fearful. Because what kind of a nation are we going to leave to our children? Like many of you, I have grandchildren. I have four. What are we going to leave to our children's children? Oh, brother, we have to pray. And we have to do that which we can. We have to do that which we ought as citizens of this country to bring about the answering of those very petitions. Brethren, is it possible to be overly political? Of course. I, I probably have done it. If you spend three, four, five, six hours a day watching the news, it, it might be excessive. And it can create all kinds of inner turmoil, quite frankly, to watch it. Because as I see it, Basically, you can watch any news outlet, and it's going to be very frustrating. Even if you watch the conservative outlets, let's say, for example, Fox or even Newsmax. The difference there, for example, with respect to abortion, is that the conservatives outlaw abortion after so many weeks, where the liberals allow it all the way up to the birth. But they both basically allow it. One's better than the other, for sure. But, brethren, it's very discouraging. But nevertheless, we are providentially born in this country, and it's a wonderful country, and praise God for it. And thus, we have to be 
Faithful and diligent citizens. Faithful and diligent citizens of this country. Why? Because we're citizens of this country. And surely we understand that the character of our rulers necessarily is connected to the overall prosperity of the nation. Brother, if this text says anything, it does say that. And thus we have to plead and pray that God would be merciful to our land. Finally, those who live under foolish earthly rulers can still prosper. That is, they can still spiritually prosper. In fact, I could even go so far to say that oftentimes, while we pray that this land would prosper, oftentimes God has his people in lands that are governed by children and princes who feast in the morning. And oftentimes God prospers his people in spite of their foolish That's under God. And that's the church. You know, you could actually apply verse 17 to Christ himself. And it wouldn't be that much of a stretch, given the fact that kings in the Old Testament were types of Christ. Blessed are you, O land, when you're... Verse 19, a feast is made for laughter... And wine makes merry. But money answers everything. Such people are truly rich. Such people have the bread and the wine of the new covenant. Such people have all of the riches that come with being in Christ. Brethren, I get discouraged. And I know you do too. Because, again, we love our country, and we want what's best for it. Yes, we ultimately want religion to prosper in this country, but we also want the nation, generally speaking, to prosper in every way. And it angers us, and it saddens us, and it frustrates us to find that, increasingly, the building decays and the roof leaks. But there's one, and there's only one, Perfectly wise and righteous king. And his building will never decay. And his roof will never leak. The soul that's governed by such a wise and gracious king will be diligent, not lazy, verse 18. And eternally and spiritually prosper and be rich, verse 19. The old commentator Robert Hawker said this, and I'll give him the last word. Money, saith the preacher, answers all things. That is, it becomes the universal means of procuring supply to all of our earthly needs. And what money is to the carnal, such and infinitely more is Jesus to the spiritual. He is meat to the hungry, Water to the thirsty, a garment to the naked, 
medicine to the sick, warmth to the cold, in short, all things for life, for light, for peace, for joy, and comfort. I am Alpha, saith Jesus, and Omega, the beginning and the end. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he my son. Amen. Amen. Our Father, we do bless you for your word, and we do thank you first for the privilege of being citizens of this land. Oh, Father, we pray your blessing to rest upon our king and princess. Oh, may you do to them, Father, what you've done to us. And may you be pleased, ere long, soon, O oh God, to give us other rulers, sons of nobles and princes who feast at the proper time. And help us, Father, to rightly pray for them and to labor for the success of this earthly country in which you've made us citizens. But, oh, Father, we thank you for that heavenly citizenship and that land that's ruled over an infinitely wise and righteous king. And we pray you, Father, that you'd help us to relate these rightly in our mind and experience and help us ultimately to give the priority to the latter, that is, that heavenly country that has a city made not with hands, whose architect and builder is God himself. Oh, make it so, our Father, we pray you. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen.